So uh, tonight's message is called the Fantastic Four. Everybody knows who the Fantastic Four are as far as Marvel Comics, right? So the Fantastic Four, and I'm going to be talking about spiritual vigilantes. Spiritual vigilantes. Now, what is a vigilante? So a vigilante is one who goes above the law when the law fails. Somebody who goes above the law when the law fails. So a classic example is Batman. Of course I had to bring Batman into this sermon, didn't I? He's my every if you know me, you know my besides God and family, my two favorite things are Batman and Reese Cups. So Batman is actually not a superhero. Batman is a vigilante. Why? Because he is hunted down by the cops. The only one that's on his side is Commissioner Gordon. The rest of the cops are told, get this guy. He's a vigilante. He's doing the cops' work. Spider-Man also. Yeah, Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. Jo John Joe Jameson, he says, yep, Spider-Man, he's a, you know, he's a criminal. He's a vigilante. So Batman is actually a vigilante more so than a superhero. Now, a spiritual vigilante upholds God's law when man begins to legalize sin. So if you don't want something to be wrong anymore, just make it legal. You know? Well, thou shalt not kill. Well, it's okay to kill babies and old people. Let's let's legalize that. Abortion and euthanasia. Boom. There you go. It's legal. Sin is legalized. You know? Uh, thou shalt not lay, uh, you know, with a man as does a woman. Okay? But they say, well, homosexuality. There's nothing wrong with the LBGTQ stuff. Let's make it legal and they can all get married. That's the legalization of sin. So there's just a few examples. So a spiritual vigilante upholds God's law when man begins to legalize sin. Now, the Antichrist, one of his titles is the man of lawlessness. So you know when the Antichrist comes on scene, he's going to be big time legalizing sin. He's the man of lawlessness. And when he says man of lawlessness, well, what law are we talking about? Obviously not man's law. I'm talking about God's law because he's Antichrist, anti the law of Christ. So I want to talk about four vigilantes, four spiritual vigilantes, three of which are found in the Protestant scriptures, one of which is found in the Apocrypha, interestingly enough. But I'm bringing the Apocrypha in because one of our heroes in the uh, canonized scriptures draws right from the Apocrypha, draws from the example of or the Maccabees, or hang on, I got that backwards. The guy from the Apocrypha draws from the Protestant scriptures. So he takes an example from the Protestant scriptures. So that's why I'm adding uh, the first Maccabees in there, because it's very important to spiritual vigilantes. So first I want to turn to Numbers, Numbers chapter 25. Your TLV? Yep, Tree of Life version. The Tree of Life version, Numbers chapter 25. So what we're talking about here is tribal leadership. Tribal leadership. Tribal leadership makes their own laws, right? It's supposed to be based on God's laws, but uh, sometimes tribal leadership will kind of veer off from God's laws and kind of do their own thing. So it's Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25. So we're going to be reading the first nine verses. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the people began to have immoral sexual relations with women from Moab. Now, it's not just the fact that they were having immoral sexual relations. What's involved in this is that sex was a part of their God's cult. 
Um, actually, uh, Baal Peor. Um, Baal Peor, the lord or husband of Peor, the way they worshipped the god was to have an orgy in front of the idol, eat a bunch of salad, drink a bunch of beer, and defecate and vomit, and that's how you worshipped this deity. So these Israeli men were having sex with these Moabite women, but at the same time, it was an act of worship to their God. So it says, while the is Israel was staying in Shittim, the people began to have immoral sexual relations with the women of Moab. Then they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, so the people were eating and bowing down before their gods. When Israel, came, when, when Israel became bound to Baal Peor, so a lot of these rituals are considered spiritual wedding ceremonies. You're becoming married to this god or goddess. And especially if there's sex involved, that's probably what the intent behind it. So they were not only committing spiritual adultery on the god of Israel, they were wanting to be hitched to another god. So verse 3, when Israel became bound to Baal Peor, the anger of Adonai grew hot against Israel. Adonai said to Moses, seize all the ringleaders and hang them before Adonai facing the sun so that Adonai's fierce anger may be turned away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill your men who have been joining themselves to Baal Peor. Then behold, the man from B'nai Israel, that is the children of Israel, came and brought a Midianite, Midianite woman to his brother before the eyes of Moses. And the whole assembly of B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So God is punishing uh, Israel for having sexual relations with the women of Moab. So guys have already been sent out with their swords to dispatch these ringleaders who are saying, yeah, it's okay. Let's go ahead and do this and be friends and be nice to these women of Moab. And all of Israel's mourning over this fact. And while this is going on, this prince or tribal leader of Israel has the chutzpah, has the nerve to bring a Midianite woman into the camp, just parading her all so proud, like in your face kind of deal. And so it says, before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of B'nai Israel, while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So it says, when Phinehas, or in the Hebrew Pinchas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the Kohen or the priest saw it. So he knew what was going on. He wasn't, he wasn't doing the do-si-do -si -do with this Midianite woman. He just wasn't boogieing down at a disco. They were doing the nasty. And I, you, everybody knows what I mean by that. And so it's everybody is shocked that this is happening before their eyes. They're like, okay, you guys did this with the Moabite women out of our sight in their territory on their turf, but you're bringing this woman here and doing it now before our eyes. They're just flabbergasted and shocked. Everybody just, they're froze. They don't know what to do because they're so shocked at what they're seeing. And so it says, Phinehas, the son of Aaron, the, the Kohen, saw it and arose from the midst of the assembly. He took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced them through both the Israelite man and the woman's belly. Basically, shish kebab them through the genitals because that was what they were doing. Then the plague among B'nai Israel was stopped. However, 24,000 were dead because of the plague. So, tribal leaders 
we're legalizing or legislating, I should say, a new morality. They were legislating a new morality. Oh, it's all right to hang out with these Moabite women and to be nice and friendly to him and get a little piece of action. Oh, and you know, God knows we really love him and we're not really, we may look like we're worshiping this other God, but we still love the God of Israel. It's okay, guys. So the tribal leaders were legislating a new morality. Moses was shocked and dumbfounded. He's usually the one to take action. He took action against the ringleaders, but when he saw this before his eyes, he was just standing there like, uh, shocked. So many were in shock and reeling over the recent tragic events of the death of the 20, well, the execution of the 24,000 who were involved in this Moabite fiasco, this Baal Peor incident. That I'm going to have it over days. Uh, it, it, may, it may have. I mean, I could see it all happening in one day because it was likely the Levites because they have always been dedicated to God, even when the golden calf they didn't participate in the worship of the golden calf. And then so, uh, yeah. And so the Levites were not only priests, but they were also sort of like the military force of Israel. They were the enforcers of the law. So Moses is like, okay, guys, strap on your swords and let's get these ringleaders. You know, we can't have sin in the camp. You know, they, they committed a, 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 an offense that's, you know, that's worthy of the death penalty. So basically, <laughs> Tribal rule be damned. Who cares about what the tribe legislates? Who cares what the tribe legalizes? Tribal rule be damned. God's law is above man's law. Now, let me read to you really quickly from Deuteronomy 22. Uh, 22. It says, I'm just going to read this verse and we're going to be back in Numbers 25, so hang out there. So in Deuteronomy, see if I can get here real quick. Deuteronomy 22, 22. It says, suppose a man is found lying with a married woman. Then both of them are to die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you are to purge this evil from Israel. Now, the traditional way of getting rid of the both offenders would be to stone them. But guess what? There was nobody to stone the Midianite woman and this tribal leader from Simeon. So it's not like Pincus could take stones and throw one at one and one at the other until they were both dead. They would be able to run away, right? So the only way was to take matters into his own hands and spear them. That's the only way he can guarantee that both of them would be executed. So one man can't successfully stone two individuals alone simultaneously. And so he improvised the execution. Now, we got to ask ourselves, what did God think about this? Did he approve of what Phinehas, Pincus, did? Let's read in Numbers chapter 25, beginning with verse 10. Then Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the Kohen, has turned away my anger from B'nai Israel. So Phinehas was acting as a spiritual vigilante. The tribal leader saying, oh, it's got our stamp of approval. It's okay. Phinehas was like, Tribal rule be damned. I'm on God's side. I know what God's word says, and I'm going to do what God says. So uh, going on to verse 11. Phinehas, son of Aaron, the Kohen, has turned away my anger from B'nai Israel because he was very zealous for me among them so that I did not put an end to B'nai Israel in my zeal. Oh, because what, if, what Phinehas did, he actually saved 
the whole nation of Israel's life. God was ready to do away with all of Israel. And then Phinehas stood up and said, not on my watch. And he killed the two greatest defenders going against God's word. And God said, oh, that's enough for me. At least there's somebody who's going to take a stand for my word and take a stand for my laws. So he says, because he was very zealous for me among them, so that I did not put an end to B'nai Israel, that is the children of Israel, in my zeal. So now say, see, I am making with him a covenant of peace, a covenant of shalom. It will be for him and his descendants after him, a covenant and everlasting priesthood. So from now on, forevermore, the, 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 the main priesthood is going to come from Phinehas. He's going to get the greatest honor and the greatest glory in the Levitical priesthood. So he says, my covenant of peace will be with him and his descendants after him, a covenant and everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and atoned for B'nai Israel. Uh, all right, let's see. Okay, yep, we're going to stop right there. So that is the first of the Fantastic Four. Phinehas, or otherwise known as Pincus, uh, he took basically the law into his own hands and said, tribal law be damned, I'm going to stand up for God's law, and God was pleased and rewarded him for his actions. When everybody else says, and if you keep reading that passage, Phinehas killed, you killed the people of God, you killed God's people, wah, 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 wah. And it's like, wait, you don't realize what happened, you guys could have been dead too, but thanks to Phinehas, you guys are alive. They didn't realize what was going on. The second of the Fantastic Four in our spiritual vigilante lesson is Samuel himself. Samuel the priest. So turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 15. So now what we're up against, we're up against the king's law versus God's law. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we're starting with verse 1. So it says, Then Samuel said to Saul, Adonai sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the voice of the words of Adonai. Thus says Adonai Zevaot, or the Lord of heavenly armies. I remembered what Amalek did to Israel how he set himself up against him on the way while he was coming out from Egypt. Now go and strike down Amalek and put all that he has under the ban of destruction. So have no pity on him, but kill both men and women and children and nursing infants and oxen and sheep and camels and donkeys. Well, God, gee, don't you think that's a little harsh? Talking about babies and children. What are you, a genocidal God? You got to remember that a lot of these nations that God was against and that said totally wipe out, it's not just because they dissed Israel. It's because they were cohabitating with the fallen angels, and a lot of them had the Nephilim gene within them. In other words, a lot of their children were giants. They were hybrids, half human, half fallen angel, which has no place in God's creation. That's why he destroyed the, uh, the earth and the flood in the first place in Genesis 6 is because all flesh, not just human, but animal had corrupted itself. And so we had to start over for Genesis uh, 13 or Genesis 3.15 to be fulfilled, the coming of the Messiah. There had to be a pure genetic line for the Messiah to come through. So don't think God is an unfair God or a genocidal God. These weren't purely total human beings here. 
It's not just the fact that they dissed Israel. It's just that they were genetically impure, that they were fallen angels, not a part of God's creation. Half human, half angel, thus giants. So the commandment was clear. Destroy everything. Like just total scorched earth, total annihilation. Seems pretty clear. Is there any amb amb ambiguity in that? It's a pretty clear command. All right. So King Saul took the law into his own hands. Jump down to verse 7. Then Saul struck down the Amalekites from Havilah until you come to Shur, which is close to Egypt. He captured King Agag of Amalek alive. Is that what God told him to do? No. Absolutely not. He captured King Agag of Amalek alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag as well as the best of sheep the cattle, even the fatlings and the lambs, and all that was good, since they were not willing to utterly destroy them, everything that was worthless and feeble, they destroyed completely. So did Saul fulfill God's command? No, no he, he didn't say to keep back the best of the cattle, the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, the best of the donkeys, the best of the lambs. Oh, by the way, capture the king too. No, he said totally destroy it all. So we see here that King Saul took the law into his own hands, reinterpreted the law of God to fit his own agenda, and did totally the opposite of what God said. And all this time, he's thinking, oh, I did the right thing. I did exactly what God wanted me to do. And he just says, basically, he says so to Samuel. So here we go. The king's prerogative be damned. I'm king. I can do whatever I want. I can make the laws. I'm king. Well, the king's prerogatives be damned. Samuel does what the king should have done in the first place. So Samuel takes on the role of a spiritual vigilante. So in chapter 15, verse 16, so here Saul is, is, is trying to excuse himself. Say, well, the reason I did this, it was a good reason. We're going to sacrifice these good things to God. And, you know, and so he's trying to make an excuse for his disobedience. So in 16, Stop, Samuel said to Saul, let me tell you what Adonai said to me last night. He's like, oh, this, this is going to be good. Okay, say on. He said, then Samuel said, isn't it true, though you were insignificant in your own eyes? Because remember when Saul started out, he was a head and shoulder taller above everybody else. But he didn't want anybody to know he was anointed king. And when it came time for the christening and the coronation of the king, they couldn't find him. He was hiding in the baggage. He was a humble guy. And now the power of the king gone to his head. So he says, though you were insignificant in your own eyes, that you were made head of the tribes of Israel, Adonai anointed you king over Israel. Then Adonai sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the Amalekites, the sinners, and wage war against them until you annihilate them. Why then did you not obey the voice of Adonai, but rushed greedily into the spoil, doing what is evil in Adonai's eyes? But I, but I did obey the voice of Adonai, Saul said to Samuel. I went on the mission, on the one that Adonai sent me, and brought back King Agag of Amalek. And I utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Saul still doesn't get it. He still doesn't understand and he realized how he disobeyed God. Utterly destroy doesn't mean spare the king. Utterly destroy doesn't mean keep the best of the sheep and the cattle, and etc. No, 
But yet he's still thinking he did the right thing. So let's jump down to verse 23. This is a very popular verse. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. Other translation says witchcraft. And stubbornness is like the iniquity of idolatry. That's pretty powerful because we're all rebellious at one point or another in our life. Rebellion is like the sin of divination or witchcraft and stubbornness is like the iniquity of idolatry. So you're putting your wants, your desires, your agenda above God's. And that's what this is all about. Now jump down to verse 32. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of Amalek. And Agag approached him in chains, thinking, surely the bitterness of death has turned back. Then Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. Then Samuel cut Agag into pieces before Adonai at Gilgal. Do you think Samuel took pleasure in that? No. no, of course not. He did. That's probably the last thing he wanted to do during his day is to cut a guy into pieces. That was Saul's job. That was his men's job. But they didn't. Yeah, Samuel was cleaning up Saul's mess. Samuel became a spiritual vigilante. He basically said, the king's prerogatives be damned. I'm going to do what God said. I'm going to do what you should have done all along. And Saul paid the ultimate price because eventually the kingship was ripped away from him. So now we're going to go to the Apocrypha. The third vigilante in our Fantastic Four, which... Uh, in 1 Maccabees chapter 2, I know you don't have the Apocrypha, so you just have to follow, you know, just listen. So in 1 Maccabees chapter 2, verse 15. So let me set it up here. Basically, Israel was taken over by Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greco-Syrians, and they were trying to cause Israel to assimilate, to be like Greco-Syrians. And, you know, they didn't want Israel to be Jews. They didn't want Israel to be Israel. They didn't want Israel to follow God's law. They wanted Israel to follow Greco-Roman law or Greco-Syrian law. So it says, then the king's officials who were forcing the people to turn from God came to the town of Moedim to force the people there to offer pagan sacrifices. Many of the Israelites came to meet them, including Mattathias. Mattathias was... Of the Levitical priesthood. Mattathias and his sons. The king's official said to Mattathias, You are a respected leader in this town, and you have the support of your sons and relatives. Why not be the first one here to do what the king has commanded? All the Gentiles and the people of Judea, and all the people left in Jerusalem have already done so. If you do, you and your sons will be honored with the title of friends of the king. There's perks to go along if you obey us. You'll get, you'll get what you want. This isn't so bad. And you will be rewarded with silver and gold and many gifts. <laughs> I love what Mattathias says. Mattathias answered in a loud voice. He wanted everybody to hear him. I don't care. If every Gentile in the empire has obeyed the king and yielded to the command to abandon the religion of his ancestors, my sons, my relatives, and I will continue to keep the covenant that God made with our ancestors. Love what he said there. I mean, that was just so awesome. 
With God's help, we will never abandon the law or disobey his commands. We will not obey the king's decree and we will not change our way of worship in the least. Wow. Pretty powerful words. So basically, secular governments be damned. Pagan governments be damned. Religious government, brown nosers be damned. So let's continue on here. Mattathias took a cue from Phinehas that we just read in Numbers chapter 25. This is what it says in verse 23. Just as he finished speaking, one of the men from Moedim decided to obey the king's decree. So this guy's saying, Mattathias is going to get us all killed. One of us better obey the king or we're all going to be dead. So it says, just as he finished speaking, one of the men from Moedim decided to obey the king's decree and stepped out in front of the altar and stood there. When Mattathias saw him, he became angry enough to do what had to be done. I like that. Mattathias saw him and he became angry enough to do what he had done, just like Phinehas. He knew what needed to be done. These guys are committing sin in front of our faces and in front of God. They need to be stoned. Can't stone them, so I'll spear them. So this is what what they wanted to do. They wanted Mattathias to sacrifice a pig on God's altar. Is a pig a clean animal? Is a pig a sacrificial animal? No, but it's a common pagan sacrifice. And they didn't, they didn't sacrifice, the pagans didn't sacrifice the area animals in the humane way that Israel did. They slit them from jugular to jugular with the sharpest knife possible in one foul swoop so they wouldn't feel anything and they would faint. They wouldn't suffer. But pigs were strangled to death. It was a long, drawn-out, torturous death. So it says here, shaking with rage, he ran forward and killed the man right there on the altar. He also killed the royal official who was forcing the people to sacrifice, and then he tore down the altar. In this way, Mattathias showed his deep devotion for the law, just as Phinehas had done when he killed Zimri, son of Salu. He was the the, uh, tribal leader of Simeon. So that's why I brought Maccabees in here, because he drew his inspiration and cue from the priest Phinehas, which was probably one of his relatives, right? So that is the third of the Fantastic Four. The last one, but certainly not the least, of the Fantastic Four that displayed spiritual vigilantism is none other than Messiah Yeshua himself, than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ was a spiritual vigilante. In John chapter 2, John chapter 2, we're going to be starting with verse 13. John chapter 2, 13. The Jewish feast of Passover was near, so Yeshua went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found the merchants selling oxen, sheep, and doves, also the money changers sitting there. Well, what's the big deal? You got to buy sacrifices, right? And what more convenient way than to buy a sacrifice once you get there to the temple instead of buying it somewhere else and just having to lug it all the way to the temple? This was the problem. Not necessarily that they were selling sacrifices. This was the problem where they were selling sacrifices. Because of this, the church that I grew up in 
you couldn't sell anything in the sanctuary. There was something called the foyer or the lobby. So if we had a musical group come, they couldn't set up their little booth in the back of the sanctuary because that was holy. That was God's place. They had to set it up in the entryway. They wanted to sell their cassettes and CDs and whatever, right? So that's kind of where they, they got that from. But where they were selling was where the Gentiles were supposed to worship. They were keeping Gentiles from getting to know, converting, and worshiping the God of Israel. That's what ticked Jesus off so badly. This place is for Gentiles to worship, meaning God is not just the God of Israel. God is the God of everybody. And you're, you're, you're treating this worship area of the Gentile like it was Walmart, like it was some flea market. It literally was a flea market because they were buying animals who probably had fleas, right? <laughs> so it was literally a flea market. All right, so it says, verse 14, in the temple he found the merchants selling oxen, sheep, and doves, also money changers sitting there. Because people were coming from all over, they had to change the currency. Like you can't use American currency here in Canada. You got to change it over. About the only place you can use it is really close to the border, like Fort Fairfield. You can use Canadian money. They'll take it. But otherwise, if you get deeper into Maine, you can't use your Canadian money. You've got to change it over to American. So they had to change it to the currency of the temple shekel. Verse 15. Then he, that is Jesus, that is Yeshua, made a whip of cords and drove them out of the temple. <gasps> Jesus is so mean. I thought he was a God of love. I thought he was so nice. Why is he beating people? Then he made a whip of cords and drove them out of the temple, both the sheep and the oxen. My Jesus is not a woke Jesus. My Jesus is loving, yes, but he's not woke and he's not gonna put up with pagan shenanigans. He's not gonna put up somebody disrespecting his father's house and his father's business. Then he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple, both the sheep and the oxen. He dumped out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He was a spiritual vigilante. The Pharisees were making money hand over fist because of this enterprise of selling sacrifices in the court of the Gentiles. They certainly weren't going to stop it. And Jesus said, Oh, he didn't say, but basically his sentiment was the woke, compromised, religious establishment be damned. We're going to do what God says, not what the Pharisees says because they think they're in charge or not what the Sadducees say because they think they're in charge. The Sadducees ran the temple. The Pharisees were involved with it. They got a little bit of piece of the action. So both the Sadducees and Pharisees benefited from the selling of these sacrifices in the court of the Gentiles, keeping Gentiles away from worshiping God. So this is what, um, verse 16, to those selling doves, he says, get these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it was written. Where was it written? It was written in Psalm 69, 10, uh, 9 and 10. It says, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. All four of these of the Fantastic Four took their life into their own hands because guess what? The people who were in charge disapproved of what they were going to do. We're in charge. We're make, we make the laws. We make the rules. You can't do that. We're going to get you. Let's grab the pitchforks and the tar and the feathers. They took their lives in their own hands to uphold the law of God 
because man was legalizing sin. So you had Phinehas, you had Samuel, you had Mattathias, and last but not least, you have Yeshua the Messiah, who were spiritual vigilantes. We are entering, we're already not entering, we're already in the thick of a time where we have to be spiritual vigilantes. And we're going to pay the price. We're going we're gonna to be called right-wingers. We're going to be called ultra-conservatives. We're going to be called bigots. We're going to be called, you know, and Jesus said, they called me worse things, so they're going to call me what they called you. And you're blessed if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. So he gave us a forewarning that we will be persecuted because of these things. Because of all this nonsense going on. And if you stand up for what is right, and not what this denomination says, or this church says, or what this church rules are, or what this synagogue's rules are, or what this pastor, this preacher, this apostle, this prophet, this rabbi says, doesn't matter. What does God say and what does God expect? Because God said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. The word says that God cannot lie, and it says that his word does not change. So you can't make new laws to fit your agenda because you think it's marketable, because you think it's better. And, you know, the law has not been done away with. It's still there. God's word never fails. It never ends. It's, it's still relevant for today. So everybody else's opinion, be damned. Your opinion doesn't count when it comes to the word of God. Because the word of God is our final authority. The final authority for all faith and practice. So if you come up in your life, whether it's your religious life or your home life or society life, that goes against what God clearly says, we are obligated to stand up against it. And, and maybe all we can do is voice our opinion. And maybe that's the most we can do. Maybe we can make a petition. We've got to take some kind of stand to say, no, this is not right. And no, this is not going to happen. Not on my watch. And if it does and you do get away with it, well, you got God to deal with. I don't want to be in your shoes. It's no longer my circus or my monkeys. It's all your problem now. The ball's in your court. So I just want to encourage you that being a follower of Christ isn't just, you know, we're nice and we're just trotting along like little sheep behind the shepherd. And it's all like, you know, a bed of roses. No, we're in an army. And sometimes it gets dirty. Sometimes it gets bloody. Sometimes it gets nasty. And nobody else will stand for the truth, and we've got to stand for the truth, and sometimes we are going to suffer the consequences and be persecuted for it. But he said, we're blessed if that happens. Blessed are you. I don't mind to have some eggs or mud slinged on me or somebody beat me up or say cuss words or whatever as long as I'm standing for what is right. You may lose family. You may lose friends. You may lose an entire congregation because of your stance. I did. I was willing to lose a pastorate because I stood for what is right and what the Bible says, not what the government says, not what man says, but what God says. And that's why we're here. That's why we started Rudy Yeshua, because we're not going to play the political religious game anymore. We're not going to play this denominational, you know, let's get in bed with Caesar kind of deal. We're going to do what God says, no matter what happens, because he is the final authority. You know, they don't own us. God does. Our bodies come from him. They may have a number on our body and a number on our name. We don't belong to them. We belong to him. All right. I could go on and on, but I'm going to get off my soapbox and we're going to pray. Lord, we need courage. We need courage more than the cowardly lion 
need courage. We need brains more than the Tin Man needed brains. Um, or not the Tin Man, that was a scarecrow. We need heart more than the Tin Man needed a heart. We need heart, we need brains, we need bravery. We need all these things, Lord, and it can only come from you, from your spirit. Because in and of ourselves, we want to fit in, we want to be liked, we want to be popular, we want things to go well, we don't want to be persecuted. I mean, that's just a, the fallen nature of our fallen flesh. We want to survive, we want to be okay, we want to be wallflowers and just fly under the radar. But your word demands that we stand out and be lights to this world. You can't help but see a light. And that's the whole purpose of a light, to draw attention. So we are obligated and required by your word to stand out and be different from this world. I mean, we're like salmon. We're going against the current. It's easy to go with the flow. We're called to go against it. So, Lord, I pray that you would enable us with the power of your Holy Spirit, with the power and the authority of Yeshua's name and blood, to be the spiritual vigilantes in this dark, broken, woke, secular, and religious world. It's not just we're being vigilantes in the secular world, we're being spiritual vigilantes in the religious world because there's a lot of churches and a lot of denominations who are falling lock and step with what is becoming the beast system. And if we are that front line of defense, if we've got to be the Marines in this scenario, then so be it, Lord. Equip us and give us the strength, the power, and the ability to be a spiritual vigilante on par with Phinehas, on par with Samuel, on par with Mattathias. And oh Lord, what an honor it is to be conformed into the image of Christ Jesus himself. Father, we love you and we praise you. We ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.